Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. I'm Julie Murphy, and you're joining the Hive for conversations about all things poetry with poets near and far. Today, I have the great, great pleasure of introducing you to Rick Barrett. Rick was born in the Philippines and grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. His fourth book of poems, The Galleons, was published by Milkweed Editions and was longlisted for the National Book Award. His previous collection, Cord, received the UNT Rilke Prize, the Penn Open Book Award, the Publishing Triangle's Tom Gunn Award, and it was also a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including Poetry, The New Republic, Tin House, The Kenyan Review, and The New Yorker. He has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowments for the Arts, and Stanford University. He lives in Tacoma, Washington, and directs the Rainer Whiting Workshop, the Low Residency MFA Program in Creative Writing at Pacific Lutheran University. It's such an honor and pleasure to have you on the show, Rick. I've been so excited about you joining us. Wonderful to be here, Julie. Thank you so much. Um, and it's especially nice to be zooming into Santa Cruz, which I imagine is sunny right now because it's raining as usual here in Tacoma today. Yes. Well, it, it actually is sunny. It rained here this morning, and we have been getting a little rain in the last two weeks, which has been great but it is uh, sunny and beautiful right now. Well, I'm glad yeah. to hear about the rain because I know that the drought has been so persistent there. Yes, yes, yeah, it really has. And, um, you know, poetry is one of those things that gets us through those uh, <laughs> those dark times of right. worry. We're, we're not quite worried about fire. Well, of course, we're always worried about fire season now, but it's nice and damp and uh, I, I live out in the woods, so it's especially comforting to have rain. Well, we can think about poetry as a kind of rain. Yeah. <laughs> a, kind of, a kind of sustenance. Yeah, that, that's right. That's great. Uh, I, I've been uh, really steeping in your, uh, in your work these last few weeks and rereading uh, your books, Cord and the Galleons. And I feel like I've been, um, kind of entering your mind in a way um, with these great poems. And I, I really admire how you achieve such incredible intimacy in your poems and vulnerability, but also you talk about a lot of political and social and uh, difficult concepts and ideas and commentary. Um, you really invite your readers to think very deeply about what it is to be human and to examine how we live together through history and time and space. And uh, I feel embarrassed and flattered about what you just said because um, <clears throat> the, the nice things that you've just said uh, feel so far away from the actual work that I, I seem to do as a poet or feel that I do as a poet, which is that um, 
just thinking about sort of the junky things that show up in my field of vision that end up in my poems. Mm -hmm. And these things, of course, end up uh, generating ideas and feelings and sort of bigger, bigger things than just the, the actual objects that uh, I'm noticing or paying attention to. But um, for me, being a, um, a poet often feels like I'm just looking at this stuff in my junk drawer <laughs> and telling stories about them or you know the, those people you see in the park with the um with the metal detector yeah <laughs> um sort of gathering these odds and ends of things that they find and maybe for me as a poet it's about you know finding these things and then constructing you know whole mythologies about what they might signify yeah. from a kind of larger human standpoint. So yeah, I, I, I do feel like a junk collector. So thank you for the praise. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a great metaphor, the metal detector. You know, we have a lot of those on the beach here in Santa Cruz of people mm -hmm. looking for for treasures. And and I always wonder what, what do they actually find? There must be a, 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 you know, what's the biggest sort of like treasure that one of those people uh, has found? Maybe a, a nice watch. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Oh, it's a it's a poem waiting to be written. That's right. <laughs> well, I I asked you to uh, bring in a poem that you admire today, and maybe we can start the show off with that. You brought a Joy Harjo poem. Yes. Perhaps the world ends. Yes, and it's such a pleasure for me to to read this poem and also to talk about it with you. Um, should I read it now? Yeah, that would be great. Is there, is there anything you want to say about it before you read it or you want to just dive in? Um, no, I think I'll just go ahead and read it. We can, okay, we can have some, some conversation about it. This is Joy Harjo's poem, Perhaps the World Ends Here. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves. And as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. That was Rick Barrett reading Joy Harjo's poem, Perhaps the World Ends Here. This is such an amazing poem. I have always loved this poem. It it just takes me right back to 
memory after memory of the kitchen table or the mm -hmm. dining room table where mm -hmm. where it's true everything happens there right and uh, harsha wrote this poem in 1994 but she, she could have written it yesterday that's right it has a incredibly timeless quality um it could have been written a hundred years ago yeah and you know when somebody encounters this poem a hundred years from now i imagine it will still have the kind of resonance and radiance that that we see there today yeah i imagine i imagine so and and she does the thing you were just describing about how you write poems is she's taking an ordinary object a table and broadening it out to, to really include everything that happens to us as humans. Yeah, I, th I think this poem illustrates exactly what, what you and I were talking about in terms of finding these objects or these things in the world and building the, the story or the stories that each of these things um, really embodies or encodes. Yeah. And here she's taken the, the table and and she's done exactly that. She's created a kind of mythos um, around the table. Um, everybody's got a table. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, for every person who reads this poem, uh, that word table actually conjures up a very particular um, object or thing. Uh, and yet, when you're reading the poem, it feels very specific uh, to, to you, even though yeah. she's actually... Um, giving each person a lot of space to imagine their own table in the poem. Yeah. And I love that. I love that quality about it too, that it, um, everybody can find themselves in the poem the way, you know, hopefully everybody can find themselves at a table because she hasn't, um, she hasn't restricted it so much in terms of specificity that there will be some people who might feel that, this poem might not be for them or it doesn't speak for them or their experience, but yeah, it's magical the way everybody is included. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the dive she takes from the title, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps the world ends here, perhaps being such an important word in that title to take that title into that first line, the world begins at a kitchen table, no matter what we must eat to live. So she's like, right at the beginning, we have the ending and the beginning and the world and the table. And it's just in the title and the first line, the whole poem is set up uh, with these pairs uh, and the tension between right. them. Beginnings and endings. Yeah. Um, but it also makes me wonder whether when she talks about the world ending, I know that from a kind of denotative standpoint, that has maybe a, a, a negative connotation in the sense that you know it's about it's about oblivion or about destruction or about just mortality. Yeah. But in, in the in the I think in the in the space of the poem, there's something somehow jubilant about something ending. It's a culmination rather than something that is wholly bad. Yes. Yes, and she, and she has kind of the pairs, pairs of things throughout the poem, like mm -hmm. baby's teeth at the corners, they scrape their knees under it. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies and ghosts and the ghosts of lovers. Right. So, so she's calling in all the stuff, all the, you, you know, the jubilant 
and right. also the painful, the suffering. Are... Well, and she she talks about wars are started at the table, but also all of these um, experiences of domestic um, pleasure and um, peace also yes. happen at the table. And the table, she says, it has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Yeah. So I... it, it's amazing. The table stands for everything. That's right. I love that. And I, I, when I was thinking about that particular line, the, the table has been a house in the rain and an umbrella in the sun, I started thinking like, wait, didn't Rick write an essay about image and detail and image? And I'm like, wait, no, it was a poem. And I went back and read through, looked through Chord to find your poem, The Wooden Overcoat. Right. And you're talking about the difference between detail and image. And you have these couple of lines right in the middle of the poem. I know the difference doesn't matter except in poetry, where a coffin is just another coffin until someone at a funeral calls it a wooden overcoat, an image so heavy and warm at the same time that you forget it's about death. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of your poem right there. I'm so interested in in your drawing a connection between that poem and this one, because I'm pretty sure that I was not thinking about this poem when I wrote that poem. But I, I, I'm intrigued by the, the connection because I think there are certain ideas that are happening in both. Yeah. And I think it has to do with, with um, with this thing that I talk about with my students, which is that when we are in the everyday world, we use language in a strictly transactional or denotative way. You know, language has um, sort of one meaning, um, words have one meaning, and we use language to, you know, extract information and efficiently move through the day. But when we enter the space of poetry, language takes on this connotative expanse. And um, language isn't just about sort of, you know, efficiently moving through the world. It's about inhabiting the world in, you know, a set of um, potential um, sort of different meanings. And, and so I think that what Joy's poem is doing and what I hope to do in my own poem was to create a space wherein you know, objects like um, tables or coffins take on maybe more significance than, you know, what they might have in a kind of a direct way in a denotative world, in an everyday sense. So, you know, poetry is all about metaphor in the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Julie Murphy, and you're listening to poems and thoughts uh, and great ideas with Rick Barrett here on the Hive. Um, let's look more directly at your work now, Rick, because I think I think you're being very modest, but I think it's your superpower to shift from the scale of these ordinary objects and everyday occurrences and very intimate particulars into really big ideas. Like you, you did that over and over again in the galleons where you were 
really chronicling a family's journey from the Philippines to America and in the process of doing so, really examining lots of perspectives on colonization. And um, the poems that you brought are new work. And so I'd love to maybe start with the poem Pleasure because um, I think this poem is also in conversation, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, with Joy Harjo's poem. Would you, would you like to read it? Absolutely. This is Pleasure. There's the paradise you're told about and the paradise you know. The shoes lined up in pairs by the front door and the herd moving with its mysterious intent across a plain in the dark. The blue of the sky, which is the zenith of all colors, and the love of the man in the next room, strong and rough as a hog's back. My mind has a slow metabolism. It is slow to understand what anything means, but it understands that if you look at something long enough, it will have something to say to you. The sun that is strangely bright on some days a poisoned canary, and the crop of winter rocks in a meadow in April. Learning decades later the name of the hospital where you were born, and watching the child eat a mango as though it is time he is eating, time shining on his lips. On fewer days I agree with the poet's dread of being the wrong person in the right world and believe in adhesion, in never showing up empty-handed, even if the pleasure I know best is fused with the abject, there's always the other side of the heart, it's coaxing. You are here, you can begin again, you can rise. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. That was Rick Barrett reading his new poem, Pleasure on the Hive Poetry Collective, KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. You know, just like Harjo's poem, this poem draws me in right from the beginning by addressing a human experience I relate to immediately, right in the title, Pleasure. And then the first two lines, there is a paradise you are told about and the paradise you know. And I am so hooked in those first lines, um, because it, it resonates so true. I, I wonder sometimes looking at this poem, if um, I said earlier, maybe in a joking way that, you know, my work as a poet is about uh, sort of telling stories about the junk that I, that I pick up or find in the world. But, you know, maybe that's true in the sense that, um, Part of the work that a poet does is to create these connections mm -hmm. between large, seemingly abstract feelings or ideas or thoughts and connect those to the things that we handle and live with every day. Um, you know, what does it mean that, you know, when you go into certain households, there are shoes lined up at the front yeah, door? That's right. Um, you know, uh, you know, from a practical standpoint, there's one way of reading that, but there are also other ways of reading that that might be more poetic. 
um, and beautiful even. Um, or, you know, when you're observing, when you happen to observe um, a child eating something, whether it's a, a mango or, you know, a popsicle, Mm-hmm. And that's just an everyday thing that you might encounter moving through your day as a as a person. But maybe part of the poet's job is to step back and ask, what does this seemingly ordinary thing mean? Yeah. And it's often the case that um, the poet finds the extraordinary in the ordinary. And I think that's part of what this um, this poem was trying to do is to celebrate the, the fact that if you, you know, as I say in the poem, if you look at something long enough, it will have something to yeah. say to you. Well, and the, the, there's, there's so many things I, I want to respond to in that, because I, I think you're spot on with that invitation. When we come to those lines in the poem, it makes me want to look long enough to understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, the things that you've introduced in this poem, they're paired in a really interesting way. The shoes lined up in pairs by the front door and the herd moving with its mysterious intent across a plain in the dark. The blue of sky, which is the zenith of all colors, and the love of the man in the next room, strong and rough as a hog's back. Like that... The, ele- the language gets so elevated and so particular, such uh, fresh descriptions. And the, the, the things that you're introducing get more and more intense as the poem goes on. I, I will say, by the way, that everything um, that's mentioned in the poem, all of the details, all of the images, those are just me collecting things from my day to day. Yeah. Um, You know, the shoes, watching a documentary about, you know, creatures in Africa. That's where the the image of the herd um, comes from. And, you know, just noticing the the blue of the sky because it is so um, it is so gray here in the Pacific Northwest where I live, where having a blue sky day is actually pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, and and I, I wonder if for, for us writers, um, you know, that gathering, that collecting of mm-hmm. impressions or or images or details, that that's sort of a given. Um, the the work then becomes how do you how do you come up with the ideas or maybe the epiphanies that come yeah. from having gathered those things? Because you know, every person has a has a subjective filter that that makes them notice these sets of things that are very different from somebody else's sets of things. And so for a poet, it's it's a matter of trying to inquire into, you know, why did I notice the the shoes by the front door? Why did I notice that image yeah. of the the herd in the documentary? Um, you know, or finding out this really interesting fact. I was reading a book about winter in the Northeast and how after the winter is over, farmers have to go through their, their fields and gather the rocks that have been, um, that have come up from the earth because in the winter time, um, I guess these rocks are kind of like raised from the, the soil. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a, a clearing of the rocks before they can begin to, you know, till it and plant it. 
So, I mean, you know, kind of seemingly like trivial things like that. Um, why, why did I notice those things? The, the space of the poem then becomes a place of inquiry yes. into why those things, um, when other people might not find those things interesting or remarkable at all. Yeah, and I think in this poem, there's a couple of turns where the I comes into the poem, where the speaker comes into the poem. My mind has a slow metabolism. It is slow to understand what anything means. Like that's such an intimate statement. And so now all of those things that came before it are kind of put in this context, but it understands that if you look at something long enough, it will have something to say to you. And then as, as the reader, I'm invited to think about those things and sit with those images and see what they mean to me. And, and then there's another turn at the end where the speaker comes in again. On fewer days, I agree with the poet's dread of being the wrong person in the right world and believe in adhesion, in never showing up empty-handed, even if the pleasure I know best is fused with the abject. And those lines start to open the door of what the speaker is saying, but they then also open the door into the reader of what do I know of this dread and what do I agree with and disagree with? And um, well, I'm wondering if, if your comments are, are... Um, well, I know that your comments are helping me to, to remember that um, when we write poems, even if we seem to be writing about things that are not about us at the outset, every poem becomes an inquiry into the autobiographical or into mm -hmm. the interior self. So I may have started by noticing these things outside of myself but as you point out, the poem ends up being sort of disclosures about the self, which the, the objects or the, the things outside the self have led the, the, the self into kind of um, understanding. Yeah. And I, I was just reminded that maybe one of the, um, one of the uh, influences on this poem might be a poem that many of you know, uh, and I imagine you would know, Julie, which is um, Archaic Torso of Apollo yeah. by Rilke. And for those of you who know that poem, you will remember that it's a sonnet wherein the speaker looks at and meditates on this archaic torso, this beautiful sculpture. And the last um, line of the poem is, you must change your life. And I, I love that, that the kind of the transformation that that poem affects in the speaker. It begins as a kind of, you know, ordinary looking mm -hmm. and eventually arcs towards uh, a sense that this thing is so beautiful. It is so sublime that my life feels um, lacking or wanting because I'm seeing this thing that is so beautiful. And therefore, I need to do something about that, yeah. <laughs> meaning I need to change my life because this object has reminded me that I can do more, I can do better. And I think that that is sort of what this last line of my own poem 
might be echoing. The last line goes, you are here. You can begin again. You can rise. So maybe that's me um, stealing a little bit of the energy of Rilke's last line. Mm-hmm. You must you must change your life. Well, I, I love those last two lines of this poem. And I, I love that like as as the reader, I am addressed again because it draws me back in and it makes it about me too. And it's such a hopeful, expansive ending. You can rise. Like it it it, it takes away the constrictions. And in a way it, it reminds me how Harjo's poem also ends with sweetness and with a sense of hope. Well, let's take a little break here and then we'll be back. Poetry Collective. You can follow us on Facebook, The Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. You can also visit our website, hivepoetry.org, where we post all of our programs as podcasts and list current events and other news. So please subscribe and you can find our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor FM, or anywhere you get podcasts. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and today we have the great pleasure of speaking with and hearing poems from Rick Barrett. Welcome back. We've just been discussing Rick's new poem, Pleasure. You know, it's worth mentioning, too, that um, when I was writing this poem, we were still deep in the pandemic. We were about a year into the pandemic. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, now we're, we're slowly entering into a, a kind of a new normal, but it's, it's worth being reminded that that first year or so was incredibly hard for everyone for different reasons. And um, for somebody like me, who, who is certainly safe and secure in terms of the job that I had and the, the kind of the resources that I had and the supports that I had, I, I wasn't necessarily suffering in the the bad ways that others were, but I think many people will understand that there was a um, we were all carrying this incredible weight and uh, maybe this um, this darkness that had to yeah. do with feeling uncertain about what what was happening in the world, what was happening to people we cared about, and how much you know threat we faced just by going outside and every day felt as though there was a kind of just getting out of bed felt um, like it needed all kinds of motivation. Yeah. And so the, the, this poem is also coming out of that space wherein you or I needed to often remind myself just on a day-to-day basis, you need to get up, you need to get going, you need to do the, the things you need to do. Yeah, and I think your word choices in the language in the the poem, especially um, in that uh, second reveal in the poem, really give that to us, like the poet's dread of being and and I believe in adhesion, and 
adhesion is just such an interesting word because it it suggests con- connection and sticking mm-hmm. together, but it also has a kind of a connotation of, you know, there's medical adhesions of things that are stuck together that shouldn't be together. So there's a little more duende that's brought into the poem. We can feel the grit that the poet is up against, even if we don't have the biographical narrative that goes up with it. We have the emotional tone through these words. And the same as the, even if the pleasure I know best is fused with the abject. You know, that tells me that this speaker in this poem has seen hard times that has, you know, rubbed up against hard surfaces. It's exciting to hear you talk about the poem, Julie, because you're you're seeing things in it that that um, I'm not seeing or that I had not intended. But but maybe that speaks to what I was saying earlier about how poems, whether mine or Joey Harjo's or other people's poems, create the space where different readers can can find themselves and their own ideas and their thoughts. Um, you know, it's it's a kind of generosity that any poem can can create for yeah. the different people who interact with with that poem. Yeah, I think that's a that's really beautifully said. And I think it's a mark a, of a well-written poem that there's that space for the reader to enter in. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you. Uh, for your reading the poem. Oh, well, thank you. I wanted to ask you, Rick, because I, I have taken a couple of workshops with you and you, you're such a generous and inspiring teacher. But I, I remember in one of your workshops, I don't know whether it was the one on syntax or storytelling, that you said that poetry is emotional at its core, but theatrical in its presentation. And that really struck with me. And you talked about a structural correlative that good poets use structure to dramatize or emphasize the story and content in their poems. And I wonder if you could tell a little bit about how you do that in your own poems. Well, first of all, I need to credit the the idea that you started with to the British poet, Philip Larkin, who said, Um, his definition of poetry was that poetry is emotional in nature and theatrical in operation. And that idea has always struck me as being incredibly true about uh, poetry, that what we're trying to give to the reader when we make a poem is an emotional experience. But that experience has to be um, dramatized for mm-hmm. the for the reader the way you know when you go to a play um, the 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 reward that you get is some kind of epiphanic emotional experience but that experience had to be um, generated with you know actors and sets and lighting and sound and the whole thing. <laughs> Um, and, and so we as poets, we're trying to, to uh, create a, a similar experience, but with, you know, more modest means, um, words on a page. So if you think about, you know, all of the elements that I just mentioned about, you know, going to a play, there are analogous things that you can find in the materials that poets would use. 
We use words, obviously. We use mm -hmm. line breaks. We use stanzas. We use metaphor. We use music and rhythm. And all, all of the sort of craft and technical elements that poets use, those are in service to the theatricality that is needed to generate the emotional experience that we want mm -hmm. our readers to have. Yeah, yeah. But well, let's let's hear another poem, and we can listen for some of those elements. <laughs> Do you want to read "Moving the Bones"? Sure. This is called "Moving the Bones." There are too many ancestors, so we are gathering their bones, the poor ones their graves broken by the roots of trees, the ones whose headstones have been weathered as blank as snowdrifts. We have bought the white plot, we have built the mausoleum, and now we fill it with the bones, the ones killed in the monsoon floods, the one buried in her wedding dress, the one buried with his medals, because there will be a time when we cannot keep track of them, scattered in a cemetery like prodigals, we collect the bones, the ones whose faces I can still recall, the ones who have been dead for a hundred years, we collect their bones. At each open grave, we think about the body taking its shape as father, sister, cousin, uncle. We hunger for the story of each figure. We hold the bones, though we know memory is mostly forgetting. Or memory is the sweeper who clears the sidewalk each morning. Or memory is the broom. The mausoleum is marble, white as certain roses, and shaped like a house. There is room for everyone we will put there the rich ones, their gravestones glowing with gold paint, the infants with sweet names. We open their graves, we move their bones. Look back far enough and your family becomes unfamiliar, a circle of people with a fading circumference. When I think of it long enough, home becomes a confusion of birthplace, hometown, country, and nation. We walk through the cemetery, we point to our own, and we gather their bones. Maybe memory is the desperate Pharaoh who commands that the things of this life go with him into the next. I would take with me the books I love best, a jar of the ocean spanning my two countries, a slip of my lover's sunny hair, I would take with me a sack of rice, my mother's orange shawl, the robe my father wears in the kitchen at night, drinking a glass of water, that we might go to just one place to worship them, to wonder at who they were. We are moving the bones, our tribe of eros and vinegar, our black hair, our ordinary minds, Holding the bones, we say the names of the dead, the music of the syllables, conjuring the hearts they answered to. We hold the bones, each stern skull, each proud sternum, 
each elegant rib curved like a horizon. Oh, so beautiful. That was Rick Barrett reading his poem, Moving the Bones, on the High Poetry Collective, KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. Wow, this poem covers so much territory in terms of um, relationship and loss and what matters to us. Uh, It's so so intense in a way the repetition of the bones each time a little bit different it's it's almost like a drumbeat through the poem that it's kind of keep touching that home base of um these incredible bone bones that the the poems ends with each stern skull each proud sternum each elegant ribbed curved like a horizon there's just such a beautiful expanse in that. You know, this poem actually, um, for those who might be curious about how, what sparked the poem, um, I was at a family gathering um, wherein there was a story told about, so I'm here in the United States now and a lot of my family is here as well, but we still have family back in the Philippines. And there was an anecdote told about um, back in the Philippines, there were all of these um, grave sites for family members that were neglected or that had gotten broken or you know lost in some way. And there was an effort by um, members of the family back home to basically gather them all up and put them in a central place mm-hmm. because um, they were all over the place in the cemetery and there was no way of sort of maintaining them um, separately. And then, you know, and then after that, the conversation moved on to something else, but I, that's, that, that, that stayed with me, that little mm-hmm. offhand anecdote that was told at, you know, at a family gathering. And so the poem um, started with that anecdote and, and got expanded to, to this, which is um, a kind of, you know, fictionalized meditation on this notion of gathering the ancestors' bones and what that means. Yeah. Yeah, and there's such beautiful lines about memory. Right, we hold the bones though we know memory is mostly forgetting, or memory is the sweeper who clears the sidewalk each morning, or memory is the broom. Uh, such great metaphor in those lines. Well, I, I think what interested me about um, those lines that you just read is that it also highlights the fact that memory is very much sort of, um, it, it. it's what comes after the the experiences have actually happened after all the drama has been played out mm-hmm. and memory very much has a kind of, you know, it's got a cleaning up. It's a cleanup crew basically. <laughs> um, after the, after the party is, has happened, memory is sort of there just sort of picking up the stuff that's been left behind all of the, you know, glittery stuff on the floor. Yeah, uh, it's such an interesting concept to think about it that way. And and then later in the poem, you go and say, maybe memory is the desperate Pharaoh who commands that the things of this life go with him to into the next. Yeah, well, that is the other 
role that memory can play, you know, if, if one figure for memory is that it is the janitorial crew sweeping up the day after, there's also the other figure of memory as the desperately um, kind of hungry being that wants to make sure that nothing is lost. Yeah. And there's a kind of obsessive kind of gathering and preserving of things, even if that means actually, you know, in a way destroying those things, the way pharaohs would, you know, relegate their whole households into the grave with them. Yeah, yeah. And then the poem turns to a more particular for the speaker. I would take with me the books I loved best. A jar of the ocean spanning my two countries, a slip of my lover's sunny hair. I would take with me a sack of rice, my mother's orange shawl, the robe my father wears in the kitchen at night, drinking a glass of water. Uh, you know, again, there's this incredible intimacy in those lines. And at the same time, the invitation for the listener or the reader to say, what would I take with? What do I hold on to? What am I willing to disrupt right. everything to keep? Uh, well, it's also, I mean, the lines that you've just uh, pointed out are, are to me the most important lines in the poem because um, the, the poet Richard Hugo, who, who is a very influential poet and teacher made um, this formulation about poems that poems have um, a triggering subject and then they have in a way a real subject that mm -hmm. the poem sort of arrives at. And so for this poem, um, I started with the anecdote of the Bowens being gathered up, you know, back in our hometown in the Philippines. So that was sort of the premise. And I wanted, I, I thought I was writing a poem about that, or I, mm -hmm. I started to. And in the process of writing about that, I discovered that the poem, the real subject, at least to me, was what you just said about this kind of desire to kind of think about what would I want to keep? What is most important to me, um, you know, in the face of death? And mm -hmm. so that catalog of you know, the books, the jar, the the slip of hair, the shawl and the robe, you know, those are kind of figures for 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 the things that I, I value and love. And yeah, it was it was kind of shocking to get to that part of the poem when I was writing it because I didn't know that I would I didn't know that that was the real subject. I thought I was just writing about this this anecdote about, you know, gathering bones. Yeah, well, I think that's a, the excitement of writing poetry is the discoveries that we come to where we think we're writing about one thing. And in the process of writing, we're discovering uh, something completely different, either a completely different subject or a, a new perspective on something that we thought we understood or, you know, to me, that's what compels me to keep writing is because it's a a way into discovery that I don't find otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and for those of us who are uh, writers of, of poems, um, that ends up sort of becoming the measure of success. Do we actually find that other thing that we hadn't expected or planned for? 
um, because the poems that that we write that sort of stay with the with the one subject that we started out with, they they might end up being kind of flat, yeah, or one dimensional, and so the the what we're actually wanting to discover in the in the act of writing the poem is that other dimension, the the thing that we had not planned for, but that becomes the inevitable place for the poem to to reach. Yeah, yeah, that's really wonderfully said. Well, if you're tuning in now, you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz. I'm Julie Murphy, and today we're sharing poems in conversation with Seattle poet Rick Barrett. I, I think of you as part of the Bay Area, but I, ha I had to auto-correct myself. <laughs> No, I, I, I am uh, of the Bay Area. I'm, I'm, I still consider uh, Oakland to be my hometown. Um, I, even though I've lived in the Seattle-Tacoma area for 15 years now, mm -hmm. um, Oakland is still, is still where my heart is. Yeah, that's great. And, and we, uh, we have a, a secret hope on the Hive when you're visiting sometime to have you come and do a reading with us here in Santa Cruz. So I would love that. <laughs> I want to plant that seed. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your emotional impetus to write. I noticed that a lot of your poems are a kind of elegy, like moving the bones is elegiac. And would you say that elegy is one of the primary emotional impetuses for your work? I, th I think it's the impetus for every poet's work. Um, you know, as Wallace Stevens said, death is the mother of beauty. And I, I also love quoting Susan Sontag, who said that death is the opposite of everything. <laughs> Meaning that, you know, um, the writing of the poem is always in the context of mortality and oblivion. Mm -hmm and erasure. And so um, all of this work that we do as poets, whether, you know, whether the poem is directly about that or not, it's, it's profoundly contextualized by that truth. And so um, the elegy is sort of the, the space wherein that truth is described and, you know, turned into reality and concrete song. So I think that mm. the elegy is, is the category for all poems, even if poems have, you know, different categories individually. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's fair to say that all of these poems are elegies. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautifully said. Well, let's hear your poem of Aaron's and this will be Rick Barrett reading a new poem. Um, it's going to be in the New York Times Magazine oh, on May 1st. Oh, great. Of Aaron's. On a table in the living room, there is a gray ceramic bowl that catches the light each afternoon, contains it. This is the room we turned into the room of her dying, the hospital bed in the center, the medical equipment against the walls like personnel. In Maine once, I rented a house hundreds of years old. One room had been the birthing room 
I was told. And I sat in that room writing towards the bright new world I'm always trying to write into. And while I could stop there with those two recognitions of endings and beginnings, I'm thinking of yesterday's afternoon of errands. My father and mother were in the back seat, my sister in the passenger seat, and I driving. It was like decades ago, but everyone in the wrong places, as though time was simply about different arrangements of proximity. Sometimes someone is in front of you, or they are beside. At other times, they are behind you, or just elsewhere, inconsolably, as though time was about how well or badly you attended to the bodies around you. First, we went to the bakery, then the hardware, the pharmacy, the grocery, then the bank. Beautiful, beautiful. That was Rick Barrett reading his poem of errands on the Hive Poetry Collective, KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. This poem is just outstanding. It, it, it almost encapsulates everything that we've been talking about. And um, the lines that just really grab my heart and squeeze it are sometimes someone is in front of you or they are beside. At other times, they are behind you or just elsewhere, inconsolably as though time was about how well or badly you attended to the bodies around you. Those lines say so much. Well, for me, this poem really does begin at the beginning in the sense that um, I was at home at my parents' house and observing this, this bowl. And it was a particular time in the afternoon when a kind of a beam of light was hitting that part of the room where the bowl was. And it was just this incredibly incandescent moment. Mm -hmm. And all of you experience this in your own living places where, you know, on a given sunny day, the light moves through that space in kind of interesting ways and certain objects get illuminated and they have this incredibly um, powerful kind of significance just because the light is hitting them in a certain way. And then, you know, within minutes, the lights moved on. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that just sort of sitting there observing the way the light was hitting that bowl just for a little bit of time. And then, you know, and then the light is not there anymore that got me thinking about all of these other perceptions that I'd been having in my mind um, during the time of the writing of the poem and made me wonder, how can I put all of those little perceptions into the space of the poem? And so this thing about the, the mm. rental house in Maine, um, you know, that, that, that was many, many years ago that I, I rented this house and, you know, there was a birthing room in there and I, I didn't realize that that would end up in this poem until, 
you know, I didn't realize that it would end up in any poem at all until that bowl somehow led me to that image. Yeah. But it's remarkable in a way that it also picks up some of the themes of Joy Harjo's poem that we started with, with the table and the room and the kind of life unfolding around us uh, and and everything that contains. Well, and also the, the sense that um, there's a span of time that we each inhabit. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the poem notices one room wherein death happens, another room wherein birth happens. But the idea of doing errands is about everything in between. Right. right? <laughs> um, between kind of, you know, between arriving and leaving, our life is conditioned by errands. Yes. Um, <laughs> by these tasks that we that we participate in um and and this is autobiographical this poem in the sense that um there was a moment when i was visiting home and uh my parents don't don't drive anymore and so my sister and i my sister and i were taking them on uh, a bunch of errands for you know a day and it just struck me how interesting it was that you know we're all in the car again, but we're all in the wrong places. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I love that sequence begins with the bakery and ends with the bank, that there's something sonically and also metaphorically that um, uh, really holds that so beautifully. Um, well, I, I'm sad to say we're up at the end of the program and I just want to thank you for joining us and sharing your work, Rick, and just your generosity of thought and feeling. It's been really great to spend this hour with you. Julie, thank you so much for the wonderful hour, which felt like uh, it was a poem itself. Just, you know, talking about poems feels so, so warm and, and illuminating and uh, I'm so grateful that you read my poems and you know asked these amazing questions um, I feel like I know my own poems better because you read them oh well thank you thank you it's just been such a pleasure and uh, we'll post links to your website and your books on our website we hope to see you in Santa Cruz live and in person one of these days I would love that rain or shine Excellent. And listeners, thanks for joining us at The Hive on KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. I'm Julie Murphy. It's been a pleasure to spend this evening with you. If you've enjoyed the program, please visit our website, hivepoetry.org. Follow us on Facebook, The Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, and look for our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor FM, or wherever you get our podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. Be for the honey, be be for the, yeah. be for the honey, be be for the. Mm -hmm.